Paging Dr. Randy. Paging Dr. Randy. I just got on call and they're paging me already. They want me to do work as soon as I get to work. Come on, let's go. Yes, you, come on. Well, I'm Dr. Randy, nice to meet you. I'm a licensed family medicine physician. Since you're on call with me today, I want to make sure you learn as much as possible. Me and a few of my special friends are here to give you all the tips and info you need to live a balanced, healthy life. Are you ready to be on call with me? I hope so. So let's get it going. Our shift starts right now. So welcome back, healthy people, to On Call with Dr. Randy. Today we have on Dr. Erica Edwards. How are you doing, Dr. Edwards? I'm well. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well, too. I'm enjoying this rainy Sunday evening. I know I'm going to sleep well tonight. I'm going to have my my weighted blanket, and we're going to knock out super hard today. (laughs) So will I. So I wanted to have you on to talk about your daughter's story regarding her autism. But first, before we get into that, you are a doctor, you are a family medicine physician. So what made you want to decide to become a doctor? Well, it's going to be a cliche answer, but really it's because I wanted to help people. I'm very interested in preventive health care. So those are the preventive measures that we can take to prevent illness as opposed to reactive health care when you're more so, you know, trying to assist people with getting better after they've already been diagnosed. So that was one of the main things that I wanted to do. So that's what pushed me towards primary care. Did something inspire you as a kid or as a medical student to go into family medicine specifically? Well, I like, as I said before, I like the preventive measure of it. So, you know, working with obesity, weight loss, healthy eating, um, a lot of the things that plague the Black community in terms of health are preventable. So a lot of times diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, heart attack and stroke, those things can be prevented. And so really I wanted to focus on improving, you know, lifestyle, improving longevity of our lives. So that was my biggest inspiration. Okay. So want to have you on, like I mentioned, to discuss your daughter's story with having autism. So let's just kind of start from the beginning. Um, your daughter's name, she's Carly Emery, correct? So her name is Carl, just like you okay, would pronounce Carl. the male's name. It just has an E on the end. So like okay. Eric Carl, the children's author. Okay. Okay. I got you. So what were some of the early signs that she had? So typically you would expect for a baby to play peekaboo, to play patty cake. She didn't do any of those things. So she didn't play peekaboo. She didn't play patty cake. There were no gestures. So no waving, no clapping, no pointing. Those were really the the major things. And there were a lot of things that she did later than you would typically expect for a child. So she didn't crawl until she was 12 months old. She didn't walk until she was 21 months old. And she, when she turned 12 months, that was really a turning point because she wasn't self-feeding. She wasn't communicating her needs. So that's how I knew that she was potentially on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. So 
how did you kind of proceed from there when you first kind of got aware that she wasn't progressing as far along as you thought she should? So I pretty much knew that she was autistic at 10 months old and I was ready for them to diagnose her then, but it doesn't really work like that. So what I did, I went to her pediatrician, they do their ages and stages questionnaire. And then from that point, they refer her to various therapies. So initially at 10 months old, she was referred to physical therapy because she wasn't crawling yet. She wasn't walking yet. She wasn't pulling up and she had some left lower extremity weakness. And then from there at 12 months old, I self-referred to Georgia's early intervention program, which is Babies Can't Wait. So that's a state program that you can call if you feel like you have developmental concerns for your child. And once you do that, they'll have an assessment done. And based on the scoring, they'll either recommend you for services or they'll tell you that your child is fine. So with Carl, they recommended her for services. Okay. Did you know about all of these services before um, your daughter started having these symptoms like early on in your training or this was something that you had to kind of look up on your own? No, I actually did not know anything at all. Um, A lot of it was really just internet research and speaking with other doctors who do a lot of pediatrics or who take care of kids with special needs and them just assisting me and telling me what the next steps would be. And I relied heavily on her pediatrician as well. So this is outside of my wheelhouse completely. And how did that feel kind of for you as a parent, like especially as a parent who is a physician and this kind of being outside of your wheelhouse? Well, I felt like as her mom, even though I wasn't an expert in what was going on, I knew enough to know that I needed to get her help. And so I took that very personally and I felt like it was my job to get her where she needed to be. It was definitely scary. I was definitely emotional, but I had to put that to the side. But the one thing I did know was that I couldn't be her mother and her physician. I had to focus on being her mom and loving her and supporting her and giving her emotional support. And I had to let the professionals do what they needed to do for her. How hard was that kind of um, trying to separate the two, the mother aspect and the physician aspect? Sometimes I know those can be intertwined together. It it was definitely difficult, especially if I felt like, you know, things weren't moving as quickly as I wanted them to move or or if I felt like she was being impacted by bias or, you know, certain professionals weren't acting in her best interest. That was very difficult for me. But what I learned to do was if there was somebody taking care of her who I didn't feel like was a good fit. I learned ways to find people who would be a good fit for her and transfer her care because, of course, trust is very important. But it was very, 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 very scary because 
as I mentioned before, my daughter had, you know, a lot of delays. And of course, now we know 100% that it's autism. I suspected that it was autism at the time, but there were a lot of other scary things that it could be. And as a doctor, I knew that. So all of these, you know, huge differential diagnoses were spinning around in my head. But because I'm not, I don't do pediatrics, I didn't necessarily know what to rule in and what to rule out. So I was just kind of considering everything. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the items that you were scared of that it could have been on the differential list? So brain tumor, Rett syndrome, cerebral palsy, um, some progressive neurodevelopmental disorder that, you know, could, could kill her or be fatal. So those were my biggest fears. My biggest fear really was not autism. My fear was what if my child has a brain tumor? Because, you know, a lot of those things can present in the exact same ways. She did have to have a brain MRI and she did have to have an MRI of her lumbar spine. And thankfully, there were no cancer seen whatsoever. You know, I was also thinking about neurofibromatosis. Like there were just a lot of different things that, could have potentially been the cause of her symptoms. How old was she when she first kind of got her imaging done? So she first saw a pediatric neurologist when she was nine months old. The pediatric neurologist didn't want to do imaging on her until she was over a year old. So she got her brain MRI when she was 12 months old and she got her lumbar spine MRI when she was nearly two years old, but she was still one years old at the time. Mm-hmm. So how did some of those initial ses- um, sessions go with her seeing physical therapy when I think you mentioned she was maybe nine or 10 months old? What kind of things were they working on during that time period? So my daughter was actually a victim of bias. So if I'm being 100% honest, they really weren't working on much at all because what they ended up saying was that she wasn't compliant during the sessions, which at this time, you know, she's 10 to 12 months old. And so it was said that she wasn't really cooperating during the sessions. And ultimately, she started physical therapy at 10 months old. But what happened was they discharged her when she was 12 months old. She was prematurely discharged from physical therapy. So really during those sessions, not much happened at all. So she wasn't in physical therapy from... 12 months to about 16 months. When she was 16 months old, that's when I took her back to physical therapy. I let them know that she wasn't to work with the previous physical therapist. They gave us somebody new 
And that is when they really started to work with her. At that time, she had left lower extremity weakness. So the main thing was strengthening that left leg. So they would do a lot of flexion and extension exercises at the ankle, a lot of flexion and extension exercises at the knee. They would, you know, hold her hand and walk her around. Um, so that was what they were basically working on her with her own strengthening up the left leg. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that she was. A... Hmm? Go ahead. Go ahead. She she did ultimately get an AFO brace, which is the ankle foot orthotic brace. So the physical mm -hmm. therapist and the pediatrician they got together. They referred her to an orthotist orthotics doctor and they gave her the AFO brace and so once she started wearing her leg brace on her left leg that is really when she was able to pull up on it bear weight on that leg and that improved her mobility a lot so you mentioned that she was a a victim of bias in her early physical therapy um, session. So can you kind of mm -hmm. expand upon that? What did you kind of recognize? So she started physical therapy at 10 months, primarily because she wasn't crawling. She wasn't pulling up. She wasn't walking. She wasn't cruising. And when she got around, she used three of her extremities. She never used her left leg. Well, when she turned 12 months old, that is when she started crawling. As soon as she started crawling, like using all four extremities equally, she was discharged from physical therapy and they said their goals were met. Well, I pushed back against the discharge because what I said was, she just started crawling at 12 months. She still has gross motor delay. The goals are not met. She should not be discharged. There's clearly something going on. There's clearly something wrong. What we were told was that her exam was 100% normal. There was no problem. It was treated as if it was environmental, which essentially means that it was because we weren't stimulating her enough or we weren't giving her the opportunity to walk or crawl. So we were told that it was environmental. And then she was discharged. And then, you know, that, that was ultimately it. And the way it happened was they actually called me and said, hey, we're discharging her. So we know she has another session scheduled. You guys don't have to come. So I said, no, you're not. She's coming to her next session. Well, when my husband took her to that session, they discharged her anyway. So at that point, I didn't push back because obviously I wouldn't feel comfortable with this individual working with my child. So we were told that, you know, her exam was normal. Well, when I ended up taking her back when she was 16 months old, and I told them she was not to work with the previous physical therapist, and they put her with somebody else, and they did her exam, 
all of a sudden the exam wasn't normal so there was hypertonia there were left there was left lower extremity weakness there were muscle fasciculations so the new physical therapist said to us does she have a neurologist you guys need to get her over to a pediatric neurologist right away she might need medication to calm down her muscles she needs this she needs that she needs this she needs that well, as a doctor, I know that there is no way that that physical exam changed in that short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I say either there was bias or the first physical therapist that she had was grossly incompetent. Mm -hmm. so and we could how did tell you... by the Go ahead. Mm -hmm. We could tell because the two physical therapists, they worked at the same place. It's just that when we went back, we were with someone new. So we could kind of tell by the way we were treated when we came back and were with the new people. Because all of a sudden, it was as if we were getting VIP service and the red carpet rolled out and everything was of the utmost urgency. And because I'm a doctor... I know how people act when they know that, that they've made a mistake or somebody dropped the ball somewhere. Now, I did, I did form a complaint, and I'm sure that behind the scenes it was handled. The one thing I will say, it wasn't a facility issue. It was an issue with that specific person, because once I did filed my complaint and once my daughter did get with a, a different physical therapist, I can honestly say that they made things right. They got her everything that she needed and that she was, you know, evaluated and treated fully and properly from that point forward. So one thing that I always like to kind of discuss is how to be an advocate for yourself and how to be an advocate for your family member. So in this case, an advocate for your daughter. What was the process like for you to advocate for her to see another physical therapist and not the one that they previously gave you? So initially, when she established at this facility, my husband was taking her. I was not going. My personality is that I don't drop the doctor card. If I go to the doctor, I'm not going to mention I'm a doctor. I'm not going to mention what I do. I'm not going to mention anything at all. Well, I essentially had to drop the doctor card and just say, hey, I'm a physician. This is what happened. This is not correct. And this is how I know that this is not correct. And so uh, at some point after I said I was a physician, I think they looked me up because after that point, that's when they really started rolling out the red carpet for me. So I essentially had to tell them what my background was. And honestly, in healthcare, a lot of people of color and black people face bias and it's not necessarily tied to our socioeconomic status or our careers because that doesn't really protect us. And this is a good case of that. But in this case, that was really all I had to do. But I will tell you, 
I do coach parents on how to navigate bias in the healthcare field. And so one of the things that I tell them to do is if you feel like you're taking your child to the doctor and you're discussing concerns and you feel like no one is adequately addressing your concerns, if you feel like no one is adequately addressing your concerns after your visit, go onto the patient portal and every single concern that you outlined during the visit, put it in writing and send it in a message on the patient portal because that message does become a part of that child's health record. And so that way it will be proven that you did raise concerns. It won't be your word against whatever provider you're seeing. And I also counsel them on certain words that they can use and also calling out bias, call it out directly. Those are some good tips. So after she had to go see uh, physical therapy, what were some of the other specialists that she had to go see next as she progressed along? So she actually could not tolerate solid foods or textures. So she did require feeding therapy to transition from purees to solid foods. And she also had, she's also still doing occupational therapy and that's to help her develop hand skills and work with her hands, be able to dress herself, feed herself, do puzzles, write, things of that nature. She's also done early intervention where she works with an early intervention specialist and they work with her in all five areas of development. And then there's a therapy specific to autistic children called ABA therapy or applied behavioral analysis. So she did do ABA therapy for a short time and that's more so helping with behavior issues and things of that nature. She actually doesn't have any aggression, no meltdowns. We don't have any behavior concerns. So that's why we didn't continue with that form of therapy. We were just trying it out to see if it was something that she needed and she ultimately didn't. So to to sum it up, she's done physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, feeding therapy, early intervention therapy, and ABA therapy. At a certain part of her journey, she was doing appointments four to five times a week. So sometimes every single day during the week. That's a lot. How strenuous if it was on you with her doing so much in the beginning, early on in life to make sure she met those goals? Because I'm assuming you still have your own life that you have to do. You have you're a physician, you got to do a whole bunch of things. Like, was this very strenuous on you? So one, either myself or my husband had to leave the workforce. And that happens with a lot of autism families, either one or both parents ultimately have to quit or there has, has to be a pivot or shift career-wise. 
So my husband left the workforce and he does all of her therapies with her, all of her appointments with her. Um, he assists with, you know, taking her back and forth to school if she needs to be picked up early. He does that. So ultimately, my husband had to leave the workforce because she requires a lot of care. With autism, when you're diagnosed, you're diagnosed as level one level two or level three. My daughter is a level three autistic. So what that means is that she requires very substantial support. And so there was no way for her to get the help and support that she needs with me and her dad, both working traditional nine to five jobs. Because when it comes down to it, if she needs something and we ask our employer, can we be off? Can we leave early? Can we come late? If they say no, what are we going to do? We're going to do it anyway. We're going to put her first. And so we knew that no job was going to accommodate this schedule. It just wasn't possible. So we made the decision to become a one-income household in terms of traditional employment. Um, and my husband, he's the one who navigates taking her to all of her appointments. Yeah, that's another different aspect that I think people don't realize, the sacrifices that Y'all have to make his parents to kind of facilitate her health overall and making sure she gets a proper treatment and develops the way that she should develop. Um, so what were her early uh, interactions with like other children as she was growing up? She didn't interact with them at all. She had no interest whatsoever. She... She just really wasn't interested. It wasn't stressful for her. It wasn't bothersome for her. It wasn't upsetting to her. She just did not interact or play with other children at all. She was just kind of in her own little world. She's always had a connection with me. She's always had a connection with her dad, but outside of us, she just had no interest in really forming connections with other people. Now that has changed. That's not the case anymore, but that's how it was initially. So how has that changed? Was it like a light switch or did she find somebody that she connected really strong to like a family member or somebody at school that she's with? Well, she does play therapy. And so at this point, she's been doing play therapy for nearly two years. And so her 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 social and communication skills, they have progressed exponentially. So she has friends at school. She comes home. She's saying their names. She's talking about them. She plays with other children on the playground. She participates in circle time now. She laughs at school. She talks. She plays. She has a good relationship with her teacher. So currently, she's very verbal. She's very sociable. And she communicates really, really well with a wide variety of people. And so the biggest reason that we have seen such a change is because of early intervention. It's because she started getting therapy when she was 10 months old. And so 
Typically, so the theory behind early intervention is that from the ages of birth to three, the connections in the brain are still forming. And so what they say is that if you can put therapies in place before the age of three and sometimes even beyond, you can reroute some of these connections or you can assist with the formation of some of these connections in the brain and that that helps children in the long term. And so she has been in early intervention since 12 months old, and we've seen a lot of progress with that. So you kind of mentioned that she had uh, play therapy. So for those who are uninformed, what goes on with play therapy? So you essentially play. So there are different types of play therapy. There's group therapy where you would go into a facility which kind of just looks like a play area and there will be a group of children and they'll just play together well with her it was a little different her play therapy was one-on-one and it was virtual because of the pandemic and so she's essentially and it's in our home as well so she's essentially sitting in her playroom playing with her dad And there is an early intervention specialist watching via Zoom or via WebEx. And so as her and her dad are playing, the early intervention specialist is giving her dad tips in terms of how to connect with her or how to communicate with her or how to play with her, such as sit down, get on her eye level, um, don't tell her things in rapid succession or give multiple steps. So really, they just, you know, showed him how to form that connection and form interactions with her and play with her on a level that she could relate to. So that's essentially what play therapy is. All they're essentially doing is just sit, sitting there playing with, with various toys. It could be puzzles. It could be the rack stack It could be dolls. It can be her kitchen set. Okay. So you kind of, you touched on early intervention. Let's say there's someone out there who's listening and their child has just been diagnosed there less than three years old. What are some of the early things that they should be kind of doing now for their child? So they should go on the internet and look up their state's early intervention program. In Georgia, that program is called Babies Can't Wait. You call them, you tell them that your child, that you have developmental concerns concerning your child. By law, they have to respond to you within a certain amount of time. And by law, they have to give you an appointment within a certain amount of time. So it is going to be a quick, quick turnaround time. They will call you. They will set up an appointment. They will have two people do independent evaluations on your child. They will both give your child scores and then they'll come together, compare, do, do an average, and they'll tell you, if your child qualifies for services or not. So if there's what's considered a severe developmental delay, then yes, your child will qualify for services. Or if they have a moderate delay in two areas, they qualify for services. Um, If they think that the development of the child is on target, then they'll let you know that. 
But all you essentially have to do is just place the phone call to the early intervention program and they'll set everything else up. And if your child is over three, you call the public school system in your county and you tell them that you have developmental concerns because when you're over three, it's done through the school district. And so they'll still have you come into the facility and they'll still test your child. They'll still give you feedback and they'll still tell you what services your child qualifies for. So if they're over three, they can still get the help. It's just through the public school system. So what are some of the things that her specialists have told you that you need to be prepared for in the future as she kind of progresses along? So typically, so when Carl was diagnosed, she was diagnosed with level three autism requiring very substantial support, but needs fluctuate. Just because she was level three at the time of diagnosis, that doesn't mean that she's going to be level three throughout her entire life. She might be level two at some point. She might be level one at some point. It just depends on how she progresses. So they did not diagnose her with mild, moderate, or severe autism because they don't diagnose autism in that way anymore. Um, they also don't diagnose children with Asperger's anymore. They typically will say autism spectrum disorder, and it'll either be with intellectual disability or without intellectual disability. So I know it can kind of be a little hard to understand, but Carl has autism spectrum disorder without intellectual disability. So at the present time, she is not thought to have intellectual disabilities. She is actually a very, 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 very smart little girl. So she's been counting since she was one years old. She knows all of her numbers, all of her letters, all of her colors, all of her shapes. She knows her letter sounds. Um, I can't even tell you how many words she has at this point. She, she communicates very well. So currently... It is thought that Carl will do really well. Even at the time of diagnosis, what they told me was to set very high expectations for her. They told me that she's autistic, but she doesn't have intellectual disability and that I should set high expectations for her. So so, so they didn't tell me she won't do this. She won't do that. She won't be independent. You'll have to care for her, you know, her entire life. They They essentially told me, you know, to, to set high expectations. And so that's what we do. But of course, every child is different. If you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism. And the other thing is that, you know, children, they can be on different levels or different ends of the spectrum. So everybody really is different, but every child has a full potential that they can reach. And so all of our goals for our children should be for them to reach their full potential, whatever that may be. So you are trying to set high expectations and goals for her. What is your goal specifically for her? Is it for her to live independently? Is it for her to go to college somewhere? What is your goals for Carl? So my, my only goal for her 
is for her to reach her full potential. That That is it. I don't get more specific than that um, because I don't necessarily think that my goals for her are important. I think that when she becomes of age, the goals that she sets for herself are what are going to matter. Now, I will say this. Do I think that she will be capable of going to college? I, I do. Do I think that she will be capable to live independently? I do. Do I think that she's going to live a happy, healthy life and do really, really, really well? I do. I, I, I really do. She, you know, she's in swim lessons. She goes once a week. She does really, really well. She's in school. She's doing really, really well in school. I get good reports from her teachers, you know, every single day. So she's actually thriving. She's doing really good. And I don't see a reason why, you know, that'll stop. I mean, of course, regressions can happen. As I said, needs can fluctuate. But those are things that we will support her through as the need arises. We choose to remain positive. Mm -hmm. So there's someone listening who just needs a little glimmer of hope. Um, mm -hmm. At what point did you start seeing the light in all of this? So, interestingly enough, when they told me that she was autistic, I cried for maybe two seconds. And then I said, okay, so let's do it. What, what's the plan? Mm -hmm. um, I honestly, I've, I've always had hope, but I think that I really started to to really be hopeful when she started being able to communicate her needs and when she started to talk. Because as she became more verbal and as she started to talk, it was like, wow, she's really, really, really smart. And one of the things that I, that I realized is what they say is not what they know. So when she started talking, I realized that a lot of things that we had been teaching her, she was actually taking all of that in and she understood it. She just wasn't articulating it until she was able and capable of doing so. So really when she started to talk, that's when that was really a turning point for me because through her communicating, that is when I realized that she is a really smart, intellectually gifted child and honestly advanced in some areas. How important has it been having your husband along with you during this process? Because I'm sure there's someone out there who's kind of going through this alone. How, how helpful is it with you having a good support system? I wouldn't be able to do it without him. Honestly, when it comes to situations like this, you know, we're we're parents, we're married, we co-parent together, but I'm her mom independently of him being her dad. When I say that, what I mean is I had to come to terms with her being autistic in my own way, and so did he. And so a lot of times, whether you're together or you're not, 
one one parent might think there's a problem with the child the other parent might think that the child is just fine one parent might want to get an evaluation the other parent might not i actually know of a situation where you know the mom did get an evaluation and the dad was resentful because she got it and the child ended up being autistic and so that really can change the dynamic of a relationship I consider myself lucky because my husband, he's not a toxic person at all. There's no toxic masculinity with him. And what I mean by that is he never went through the whole, there's nothing wrong with my seed. That's my child. They have my blood. He never went through some of the things that we go through culturally in that way. I told him she's autistic. He said, well, I, I don't see it. I think she's fine. And I looked at him and I said, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I said, we are going to sit in a room one day and they are going to tell us some things about her. And I need you to get prepared. And it's interesting because when they told us, I cried and he, he was fine. Now, he might have cried <laughs> later after we got home. I don't know. But in the moment, he, he seemed okay. But you know, after a while, he did start to notice things and he and it wasn't that far. I think it was maybe a couple of months later. He was like, you know what? You're right. There's there's a problem here. And he's very hands on. He's very vocal during her appointments. If he doesn't agree with the treatment plan, he's going to say it. If he wants to discuss an alternative, he's going to say it. He likes to you know, recap after appointments, have conversations so that we're on the same page before appointments. So I, I honestly, I couldn't do it without him. Like we're, we're a team. This doesn't work without either of us because us working together, that's the reason why she's doing so well. I think the biggest thing that I would say to men is I understand how society views relationships. I understand how society views gender roles. And I understand that it can be difficult in a situation like this to leave your career and take care of your child full time. But if that's what's in the best interest of the family, I would say 100% do it. Because in our case, I'm a physician my daughter is on, our daughter is on my health insurance. She receives the bulk of her care in the healthcare system where I work. And when we, you know, crunch all of the numbers and everything, what made the most sense was for him to leave the workforce and me to stay working. So it wasn't, well, you're the woman, so you have to quit and take care of this. So I would just say, Everybody have an open mind and do what's best for your child. Sounds like you got a good husband over there. What's what's He's his the name? Best. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to your husband. So, if you had to la leave any lasting words of wisdom for someone whose child has autism right now and who just recently got diagnosed, what kind of words of wisdom would you leave for them? I would say that take your time, go through the emotions, feel whatever you need to feel. Do not rush yourself. 
but ultimately realize that every child has a full potential that they can reach and no one knows what that is until it happens. So don't let yourself be too troubled by negativity because there are going to be a lot of things that people are going to say that your child will never do, but they're going to do. I was told that my daughter would not walk independently in the foreseeable future. They tried to put her in a gait trainer. Well, she was walking independently within three months out of nowhere and everybody was shocked. So just trust your gut. Don't give up on your child and stay positive because your child is going to do well because they have you. Amen. We speaking positivity into your child's life. And so as always, I like to end with Randy's random question. So I got one random question that I want to ask you. You ready, <laughs> okay. Dr. Edwards? I am. So you get a week off. All your notes are closed. All your charts are closed. You're good. Nothing's in your end basket. You and your husband going on vacation. Where are y'all going? The Maldives. Pick any destination. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Why the Maldives? <laughs> it, because I've always wanted to go and it looks so peaceful and so relaxing and beautiful. And, and it's far away from everything. So you have no choice except to completely leave all of your troubles and cares at home. <laughs> <laughs> I totally agree. That's That's probably like number one or number two on my place to go. I mean, I've seen some pictures and the Maldives has some beautiful blue water. Yes, I really, we're, we're going to get there. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that's it for my random question. I appreciate you sitting down and being on my podcast and sharing your story with your daughter and with your husband and with yourself. Um, I wish y'all all good luck in the future. And if you have some social media stuff that you want to throw out there, go ahead and throw it out for my listeners. You can follow us at Carl Emery's World. So on YouTube is Carl Emery's World, C-A-R-L-E-E-M-E-R-Y apostrophe S world w-o-r-l-d on tiktok is at carl emery c-a-r-l-e-e-m-e-r-y at instagram on instagram is at carl underscore emery and then on facebook it's carl emery's world all right so we got to go all in so y'all make sure to go <laughs> follow her on youtube tiktok instagram MySpace, all of those different <laughs> platforms that they're on. Yeah, we're, we're on <laughs> all, <the> platforms. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for being on. Thank you. Thank you.